Well, like I said, this morning we are starting a brand new series called Right in my eyes. And throughout this series, we're going to be diving into the Old Testament book of Judges. Now, Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. And so if you have a Bible or you're going to be using your Bible app, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. We'll dive in there in just a few minutes, but once you get to uh, give you a head start on that, on where we're going to be going, but Judges chapter 1. Now, in my opinion, the book of Judges is one of the most fascinating and engaging books in all of the Bible. And for those who think, ah, the Bible's boring, that doesn't engage me, that doesn't interest me, my guess is they probably haven't read the book of Judges. And as we go throughout this series, you might be even surprised by some of the content of this book, which contains stories about gruesome murders, sexual exploits, superhuman feats of strength, and multiple bizarre mutilations. Needless to say, there is some crazy stuff going on. Somewhat is, uh, some of it is very disturbing. Uh, and so we have a lot to look forward to as we go into this series uh, uh, talking about the book of Judges. And really, I would encourage you in this next week to read through the book of Judges so that you know all that's coming. You can kind of prepare yourself for some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in the upcoming weeks. Now before we dive in though this morning, I kind of want to set the stage for us by providing uh, a bit of history, of, of Israel's history, a brief history if you will, prior to the book of Judges. There's a lot there that there's, there's to cover, but we're going to give you kind of the Cliff Notes condensed version this morning. So you might remember back in the book of Exodus, right? Right after God miraculously leads the Israelites out of Egypt after spending hundreds of years there in captivity, Moses, who's the leader of the Israelites, so Moses and the nation of Israel, well, they make some really poor boneheaded decisions and sin against God. They disobey God. And as a result of their sin, that leads to 40 years of Moses and the Israelites wandering in the desert. And they're wandering for 40 years, thus delays their entrance into the promised land, which is the land that God promised to give Abraham and the Israelites all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so, at the end, fast-forwarding, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses dies, and now Joshua succeeds him as the leader of the nation of Israel. And Joshua is given a couple of responsibilities. First, he is going to lead the nation of the Israel, finally lead them into the promised land. But he's not just going to lead them into the promised land. He's also given the responsibility of, of leading the nation of Israel to conquer all of the other nations within the promised land that are currently living in there. So these four nations, these enemies of Israel, and Joseph is given that responsibility. And so the book of Joshua, did I just say Jonah? Joseph. Joseph. 
Sorry, that's not right either. It's Joshua. <laughs> Joshua's like, Jonah is a whole different story. Um, we're not talking about Jonah this morning. Joshua, the book of Joshua then, is, is all about the story of the Israelites' quest to drive out these foreign nations. And so we see conquest after conquest and, and, and their ability to take possession of the land that God promised to Abraham. And once the Israelites defeated most of their enemies, the land is divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And this brings us to the book of Judges. And this morning we're going to be taking a look at the first two chapters and as we do so we'll discover two lessons that we need to learn. And so in Judges chapter 1 the Israelites conquest to conquer the people of uh, that were living in the promised land it continues and so they're still trying to wipe out all of these foreign nations and drive them out of this land and the first half of chapter 1 provides us with details of the conquests of the tribe of Judah and in verse 2, it, uh, we know that God tells the Israelites, and more specifically the tribe of Judah, that he has given the land into their hands. And so it's all but theirs. They just simply have to take possession of it. This land belongs to them. And so it should come as no surprise that Judah conquers city after city as they move throughout this particular region, the region that was assigned to them as the tribe of Judah. And they're driving out the Canaanites and laying claim to this land that God promised them long ago. And we would also be right to expect that every tribe of Israel would experience the same level of military success that the tribe of Judah did. Because after all, God's promise that he is with them and this land belongs to them was not just for the tribe of Judah. No, no, it was, it was for the entire nation of Israel. And so they all had God's backing, right? This promise extended to the entire nation. However, in verse 19, we see the start of a trend that continues throughout the remainder of chapter 1. Allow me to read verse 19 for us. It says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. And so verse 19 begins, the Lord was with the men of Judah. And so as, again, we would expect, Judah didn't experience, experience much resistance when it came to taking possession of their land until verse 19. And all of a sudden, they, there's this obstacle. There's this roadblock. There's this mountain, if you will, that comes in the form of iron chariots. Their enemies had superior weapons, tanks, if you will, in that day and age. And they weren't able to drive out the other people living there. And as we go through the remainder of the chapter then, you come to find that Judah isn't the only tribe that has trouble completely conquering the territory that's given to them. In verse 21, it says, The Benjamites failed to dislodge the Jebusites, another group living in uh, the Canaan. And so the Benjamites and the Jebusites end up living amongst one another because the Benjamites weren't able to drive them out. And then in verse 27, we learn that the tribe of Manasseh didn't drive out the Canaanites because the Canaanites were determined to live there. 
Now, ultimately, the Israelites did uh, overpower those Canaanites and force them to become slaves, and so they did get free labor out of it, but they didn't drive out their enemy from the land. And then in verses 29 through 35, we learn that the tribes of Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan also failed to completely drive out their, the, their enemies and take control of the land that was given to them. Now, you hear all that, and if you're anything like me, this isn't stuff that really just grabs you, and it's like, where's the exciting stuff that you were talking about? And, and this information, it doesn't even seem all that important. I mean, if you're like me, my response is kind of like, so what? Who cares? They weren't able to fully conquer the, tri- or the, the, the promised land. They still got the majority of it. And not only that, those who weren't able to drive out all their enemies, they forced them to become their slaves, and now they have free labor. Uh, you know, all things considered, it doesn't really sound all that bad. Well, God's response to their failure to completely drive out the foreign nations was a little bit different. And let's check out what, what we see God's response to be in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Allow me to read it for us. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgah to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. This brings us to the first lesson that we need to learn from the book of Judges. And it's that disbelief leads to disobedience, which leads to disaster. Disbelief leads to disobedience, which leads to to disaster. You see, God is upset with the Israelites because they disobeyed him. They failed to take complete possession of the land. That's what God wanted them to do. Not take half of it, not take 75%, not even take 95%. I want you to completely drive out the foreign nations. And they, didn't, and they failed to do so. And their disobedience wasn't due truly to the superior weapons of their enemies, as we see referenced in, in Judges chapter 1, verse 19, these iron chariots. It wasn't really about that. And their disobedience wasn't really because they had this true inability to drive out these other nations. I mean, after all, God was backing them. How, they, this shouldn't have been a problem. God is on their side. You see, the Israelites failed to completely drive out their enemies because they didn't trust that God would do what he said he would do. All the way back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, God says, I will give you every place where you set your foot. Later on, it says in Joshua chapter 23, verse 5, the Lord, your God, the Lord God himself will drive them, being the foreign nations, out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land, as the Lord your God promised you. But when the time came for the Israelites to actually drive out the nations, they failed to put or to trust that these words were true. 
And instead of completely driving out the four nations, even despite the resistance, it's not like the Canaanites were like, yes, we will move on your behalf. No problem. You want our land? We're out of here. By all means. Of course not. They were resistant to the Israelites coming in. But even in spite of that, right, they should have pushed through and conquered the land. But that's not what happened. The Israelites, they got lazy and they settled for the easy way out. And unfortunately for the Israelites, they would suffer the consequences of their disbelief and disobedience. As we just read in Judges chapter 2, verse 3, it says the four nations would become a thorn in the side of the Israelites. See, the nations that they failed to drive out would be this constant source of warfare. And in time, some of these nations would actually overpower the Israelites and rule over them. Verse 3 also says that the false gods of the four nations would be a snare to the people. And this temptation to worship the other gods of these foreign nations would stir God's jealous wrath against the Israelites. And unfortunately, Joshua's final warning to the Israelite leaders. He's on his deathbed and he's he's given this final message to the Israelite leaders. and, And this final message, this warning, becomes the Israelites' reality. Check out what Joshua says in Joshua chapter 23, verses 12 and 13. Joshua says, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. You see, the disbelief and the disobedience of the Israelites, it led to disaster. Now at the end of the day, it's not about the Israelites' ability to drive out the foreign nations. That's really not what we're talking about. It's all about their trust in God, or really their lack of trust in God, to drive out these foreign nations on their behalf. You see, in essence, God, Israel is saying, God, we can't drive them out. We've done everything we can. We've tried really hard. We've even gone to war with them. But, but after all of that, we simply can't do it. God, it's just, it's just not going to happen. But God is saying to them, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. See, it has nothing to do with the strength and ability of the Israelites. And it has everything to do with the strength and the grace and the power that God provides to them to accomplish his will and his desires through the nation of Israel. And so with that in mind, we need to ask ourselves a question. In what areas of my life am I telling God I can't. And is God responding to us by saying, it's not that you can't, you won't. For a moment, I I want you to think of your life like the unconquered land of 
Canaan, right? You have this unconquered land, and it is your life. And, and in this land, there are all of these sin issues or areas of unbelief that you need to drive out because you know it's your desire as a follower of Jesus to rid yourself of anything that wouldn't be pleasing to God. And so you are this unconquered land of Cana seeking to please God and, and drive out all of these issues. And yet, we have yet to drive out aspects of our lives that we know aren't pleasing to God. And for whatever reason, we've been saying, God, I, I can't. I've tried, but I can't. I I've done my best. I've given my best shot, but I simply can't do it. I keep messing up. It's just too hard. But God is responding to us. It's not that you can't. You won't. And perhaps the unconquered Canaanite in your life is an issue of integrity. And you're saying, God, you don't understand. I just can't be completely honest at work. Because if I would, my sales numbers would drop and I would no longer be in a competitive position for this particular promotion. My family would suffer because I would no longer be able to make X amount of dollars that I need. And so I, I can't be honest at work and everybody else is cutting corners anyway. Or God, I can't be honest when it comes to my schoolwork because I have to get this GPA, because I have to get this certain degree in college, or I need this certain GPA so I can get this certain scholarship and receive this much money. Perhaps your unconquered Canaanite issue is an issue of forgiveness. God, I know I should forgive them, but I can't. Or maybe your area of sin or unbelief is an issue of sexual temptation. God, I know it's wrong, but I can't say no. God, I, I know I shouldn't be, but I just can't stop looking. Maybe your area of unbelief is an issue of generosity. God, I can't afford things as they are right now. How do you expect me to give you some of my first fruits, to give any of my income to you? I can barely make ends meet right now. I, I, I can't. I just can't give money to you. But unfortunately, whenever we say, I can't, it becomes an area of defeat in our lives. Because we're relying on our own ability to obey, instead of relying and trusting God to provide us with his strength and power and grace to overcome our Canaanite issues. And so we have to strive to walk by faith in every area of our lives and, and we'll know that we're doing just that when we're living in full and absolute obedience, trusting God to accomplish all that we can't. And when that happens, we'll go from disbelief, disobedience, and disaster to belief, obedience, and blessing. We get to this point in chapter 2, verse 6, and, and if you extend this section all the way to chapter 3, verse 6 of Judges, it, it gives us a synopsis, if you will, of what's to come in the rest of the book of Judges. And while there's so much that we could unpack in this next chapter or so, I'll focus on just a few verses that provide us with our second lesson this morning. And the lesson is found in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. And I want to read these verses for us. Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. 
After that, the whole generation, this is Joshua's generation and, and those who were living with him at that time, this generation of Israelites. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, they died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. The second lesson that we need to learn from the book of Judges is that amnesia leads to apostasy. Turning our back on God, walking away, running away from God. Amnesia leads to apostasy. What jumps out to me about this passage is that those who fall away from God, who turn their back on God, who walk away from Him, are only one generation removed from strong spiritual leaders. Leaders who had loved God and served Him faithfully. Just one generation removed. I want to bring you back to the end of the book of Joshua once more to remind you of a statement that Joshua made. And you may have this statement written on the walls of your house as a work of art. And this is Joshua speaking to the entire nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. And this is what Joshua says. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In the verses that follow, we find the nation of Israel's response to Joshua's words. And in, in uh, Joshua chapter 24, verses 16 and 18, it says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. So how do you go from that level of dedication to God in one generation to the next generation being described as one that did evil in the eyes of the Lord and serve the Baals, the false gods of foreign nations? We find the answer to that question in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And it's because this generation that walked away from God, they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Amnesia leads to apostasy. In other words, when we forget all that God has done for us, it becomes easier for us to turn our backs on Him and to walk away from Him. Now when it comes to this generation of Israelites who walked away from God, it's not like they simply forgot about God or His existence. 
And it's not like they simply forgot about the Passover or the crossing of the Red Sea or the walls that crumbled around Jericho. They certainly would have been told about these things. And so what's important for us to understand is that the word no in Hebrew is yada, which means intimate knowledge. And while this generation knew about God and the historical events, this generation wasn't intimately familiar with them. Or in other words, they were mentally aware of all that took place, but it had no impact on their heart and the way they lived their lives. They weren't, these things weren't precious to them like they were to Joshua and the generation prior to theirs. And unfortunately, as we can see from this passage, it doesn't take long for the shift from faithful followers to apostates to take place. Pastor J.D. Garrar writes, In one generation, we go from a people who saw God knock down the walls of Jericho to a generation that doesn't know him at all. Now, while it's certainly the responsibility of each and every individual to make a decision about whether or not they put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation. No one can make that decision for anyone else. As much as I would want to, to make sure that my four kids know and love Jesus and spend their entire lives walking and following him, I can't make that decision for them. What I wouldn't give to just have that one checked off. But I can't do that. Each and every person is responsible to make that decision on their own. Each of us have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Do you believe that he's the son of God? That he died on the cross for your sins? Are you willing to bank your eternity on him? And everybody has to make that decision. And while that is true, I can't help but think that Joshua and his generation of Israelites failed the next generation to some degree. They didn't ensure that the next generation intimately knew the God of Israel. And here's where it gets real for us. If you'll allow me, I'd love to just talk specifically to parents, especially those who still have kids at home. You see, you and I have to understand that discipleship, training our kids to know and follow Jesus, that's our responsibility and no one else's. It's not grandma and grandpa's, it's not uncles and aunts, it's not brothers and sisters. As parents, it is our responsibility that is given to us by God to train and disciple our children to follow Jesus. Why? So that Lord willing, they might one day make the decision to follow Jesus on their own. And yes, they'll still have to make that decision, right? We can't force that upon them. They still have to get to that point on their own. But it's our job as parents to do everything we can to make sure that they don't fall into the same category as the generation of Israelites who didn't know God. Now, if you're not a parent or maybe you're in the grandparent phase of life or you have nieces and nephews or you just attend LifePoint, you're not off the hook. 
because we are a church family. We are all in this together. And we all have a responsibility to one another to help parents point their kids to Jesus. No one goes alone. And so if any of our kids are falling away, we all bear the burden of that together because we're a family. It's our collective responsibility. We need one another. But it's so important, parents, for us to recognize that the responsibility of uh, discipleship primarily rests on my shoulders. Not LifePoint kids and not LifePoint students. And while certainly that should be part of our discipleship strategy, it has to be. If your strategy for discipleship, training your kids to know and love Jesus, if it begins and ends on a Sunday morning, if it begins and ends on a Thursday night by shipping your kids off to youth group, you got some work to do. There's more that needs to be done because it's our responsibility as parents. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I doing to disciple my kids, to train them to know and love Jesus? What do I need to start doing? What should I stop doing? Am I modeling what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Am I properly balancing my own priorities so that my kids, as they see that in my own life, one day they'll know how to balance their priorities? Do my kids ever see me reading the Bible? Do I ever set aside time to pray with them? Have you ever talked to your kids about why you give a portion of your money to the church? Maybe some of you need to start giving a portion of your money to your church so you can start telling your kids why you're doing that. If you evaluated all the things that you have them involved in, what would they think is most important? Going to college? The type of job they're going to have? Or whether or not they walk with Jesus and live their life for him. See, the Bible is clear. Amnesia leads to apostasy. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Parents, church, family, let's do everything we can to make sure that's not our family. Admittedly, as we wrap up this morning, things aren't looking so good for the Israelites in chapter 2. In fact, their situation seems pretty bleak. After all, in, in verse 15, it says, They were in great distress. They have disobeyed God, and now they're suffering the consequences. And it seems that a whole generation, a whole generation of Israelites is lost. And perhaps you can empathize with the Israelites this morning. Maybe things aren't looking so good in your own life right now either. Things are tough. Things are difficult. You're not really thrilled about the situation that you're in, and you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. For whatever reason, things seem kind of bleak. 
And if that's you this morning, I hope you'll be encouraged to know that this story, one of Judges, is not a story without hope. God has a plan to deliver and save the Israelites. In verse 16 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. And we'll be talking more about that in the coming weeks. But this hope of deliverance, this hope of being saved, it's not just for the Israelites. You see, God has a plan to save you and I as well. We can understand, we know, cling to the promises that God will never leave us or forsake us. That God, he loves us. That he's provided a way for our relationship to be restored with him. That we can look to the hills and know where our help comes from. That we're not alone in anything that we're going through. And while we may not understand it, while we may hate our circumstances and want to wish them away, God has a plan. Even when we don't understand. His ways are higher than my ways. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to worship a God I understand. It's too small. It's too small. A God we understand is a God not worth worshiping. So while you may not know what's going on or why things are going on or why life is just not very pleasant right now, hang your hat on the fact that we have a God who loves you, who provides hope and peace and comfort. And your story is not without hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, for the challenge that it brings, and for the, for the encouragement, for the love, for the comfort that it provides. God, we need it. God, for those in this room who are parents or who have any sort of influence over children, God, that is a, a job, a responsibility that you've given to us, which is not easy. And sometimes I wonder, God, like, why didn't you just, just make it so that all of them would follow you? But that's not what you did. You, you put that responsibility on us. You gave us a role to play. And so if that's the case, we need your help. God, as parents, as grandparents, as, as uncles and aunts, God, as members of this church, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. God, give us the discipline that we need to practice and model what it means to follow you so that our kids know what it looks like. God, give us boldness. Give us courage. May we stop saying, I can't, and trust in you. God, we pray all this in hopes that you'll receive the glory and the honor and the praise because you and only you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.